This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. Hey there, Bob Squad. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. We're here with number 18, episode 18 already. This show is now old enough to vote. But who would let it? And buy tobacco. No, they changed that. It's 21 now. Well, okay. But this show is old enough to drink in the UK, so that's good news. Join the military. Well, we're here today discussing like none of those things, but uh, we'll be talking about the value of revelation, the value of specifically general revelation. I'm Caleb Castro. I'm Andrew Smith. And we're going to jump into it here, starting off with a little bit of a reminder of what we were talking about in our most previous episode in covering the wonderful works of God from chapter 3. Bobbing had been talking about how man uh, was made to know God uh, as, as, as a creature, and a creature with the image of God in him. Mankind was built to have a real relationship, a real knowledge of the God who made him and with the creation around him. The problem is that through sin, this knowledge of God himself and others and other things uh, is distorted. It gets corrupted. Nonetheless, man does still have some kind of knowledge about the world around him. It is just not a a thorough knowledge. Uh, And we call this a general revelation. Bobby gave a definition in chapter 3. Paraphrasing, he, he says that general revelation is the normal natural phenomenon or the occurrences to make... God's power, wisdom, and goodness uh, known to all mankind, even if some refuse to uh, believe and honor him as God. So basically, this world is God's creation, and the everything in existence is like a, uh, it, it testifies to who God is. It's like a, his fingerprint has been marked on everything around us. Man, though, uh, in his fallen state, denies that. We, he, he knows there's a God. The evidence is all around it. So we talked about the various evidences that are presented from nature for God, those six arguments. That's all in episode 16, if you want to go back and listen. We talked about the census divinitatis, this formulation of John Calvin, that every man is essentially hardwired to know God. There is something in us, a God-shaped hole, a God-shaped vacuum that... We are created to know God, but the question is, do we know God? And are these things in nature enough for us to know God? And we answered that in the negative in our previous episodes. They're not enough to know God. We continue to unpack general revelation here in chapter 4. But really what the purpose of this chapter is, is preparing to talk about special revelation. It's largely laying out in detail the distinction between general and special revelation, how they relate to one another, how they depend on one another. Well, now, and we got another question, then, that's kind of implied in the title in the same way. Well, if all of this is for the purpose of special revelation, then, like, you know, why is general revelation important? You know, why does it matter then? He opens right away, posing a danger, posing a problem that typically occurs when discussing these issues, either overestimating or underestimating the value of general revelation, either making too much of it 
or making too little of it. Yeah, can we, um, I mean, in general revelation, uh, you know, by it, can we know every single thing? We've been over that multiple times now in previous episodes, right. but we deny. It, we deny. <laughs> we do not affirm. We reject the error of the pantheists. <laughs> yeah, but there's there's still a remarkable significance for it uh, in light of special revelation uh, in the sense of salvation. But Bobink is looking at general revelation, uh, as he said in chapter three, from the vantage point of the word. Even general revelation has to be based in the word. But it's not a salvific knowledge. It's not a saving knowledge. That only comes through the spirit and special revelation. It only comes through scripture. It only comes through the knowledge of Christ. General revelation points to God in terms of, I mean, there is a God. He exists. He made all of this. He set all of this in order and that sort of thing. But there's no knowledge of our redemption in Christ by way of general revelation. And yet we need to know it. It's, it's through general revelation, the natural things in the world, the the things that are true, uh, things that that have truth in them, things that are beautiful, things that uh, are ethical. It's everything in how this world runs and operates in nature and all things part of it that fit into God's grand plan of redemption in bringing salvation in Christ. So, so a savior comes in a real time, in real history. And general revelation is the road, the cobblestone path that leads up to the peak of all of history that Christ uh, stands upon. Right. So let's look a little bit at this problem that Bob Inc. opens this chapter with, this undervaluing or overvaluing. Caleb, what are some examples of either overvaluing or undervaluing general revelation? Uh, one great example would be the deists, and actually also pantheism. Uh, they're they're different in a regard, and yet basically everything can be understood by the light of reason, by the light of nature, by examining this world around us. General revelation can essentially uh, give you all answers in a in a sound knowledge of uh, your existence and how you relate to it. I think that even takes on more subtle forms in our day when we look at science and how it has advanced and how we attempt to find a scientific and naturalistic explanation for anything and everything, even to the point where we may run the risk of, although we as Christians, at least in word, affirm the spiritual, we can functionally deny spiritual realities. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's easy to kind of just see with the natural eye. Right. Um, and conclude that that's it. On the flip side, we can undervalue certain camps, even within the Reformed tradition, that have said that general revelation does not exist. You're right. There, there, there's no way for any form of revelation that can benefit someone that is so corrupt, to, to be so sinful uh, that we don't acknowledge God as Savior. There's nothing in this world that's going to benefit us, really. And it's like you you just kind of sit uh, waiting in judgment. Um, nothing good is meant for you. It's only meant for the believers. In a lot of ways, with the modern world, the postmodern world, you know, there there's uh, definitely the overvalue of uh, general revelation. In fact, they, they would assert that, uh, you know, truth can be entirely known basically by reason alone. In some ways, you know, there's things where we have to agree that like, you know, two plus two equals four. That is uh, something that we can, both believers and non-believers alike, both pagans and Christians can know to be 
objectively true without debate. And there can be benefits from knowing things, say, in mathematics that uh, is utilized in many areas of science and research. But a big difference comes down to uh, what's the point of this knowledge? You know, is, is it just knowledge for knowledge's sake? You know, where, where is the point where general revelation and special revelation actually meet? You know, all general revelation is meant to point and bring about the benefits in Christ uh, in his work on the cross. You know, and that, that's something that the unbeliever obviously doesn't see. I think it's interesting route that how uh, how Bovink actually comes to show this. He, he wants to look at general revelation throughout the scriptures, particularly Genesis 3, right after the fall, up to time of Abraham in Genesis 11-12, uh, uh, the Tower of Babel and the calling of Abraham. He looks at how a natural revelation had played out in those earliest periods uh, in, in a way where they were general and special were kind of mingled. He has a really interesting approach here. Yeah, he does. In the kind of middle section of this chapter, starts walking through redemptive history, walking through the first several chapters of Genesis and distinguishing, bringing out special revelation and general revelation in the earliest world. It's really interesting that he does this. I've mentioned before that people often pit biblical theology against systematic theology. But again, we see Bovink doing basic biblical theology stuff here. Yeah, th this is really, I remember uh, in reading this, this is something that you kind of expect to see more of his contemporary and friend, uh, Gerardus Voss, work through. Sure. One of the things that indicates uh, where Bovink is wanting to go with this, uh, why he's using this early biblical theology, Genesis 3 to 11, uh, is to show this contrast of how God's plan unfolds in history, in time. He starts off with that, uh, that last paragraph there on the first page of this chapter where he says, uh, when first man and woman have transgressed the commandment of God in paradise, their punishment doesn't follow immediately nor in force. You know, God doesn't just wipe them off the face of the earth. Uh, in their sin, they're not uh, automatically transferred into, um, you know, into hellfire, but God has their line continue. He, he spares them. Uh, he punishes them, certainly, but he spares them, and he even gives a promise. And Bobbing points out that uh, here you have a kind of a, a strange tension of uh, from the fall, a curse and a blessing, a, a two-sided uh, tension now uh, in existence. Right, there are these two... Revelations working side by side, you see it working out in a lot of the various divisions you see in these early chapters of the Bible. Coming from Adam, you have the line of Cain, the line of the curse. You know, Cain murdered his brother and was set to roam the world. And in isolation, it's more than just isolation from his family. It's isolation from God, isolation from true worship. And yet you see from this line of Cain culture a lot of the culture emerges things like hunting things like music things like animal husbandry really important developments for human history emerging from this line that does not have special revelation it's not the line that has followed after god that's the line of seth but there still is general revelation and common grace on display to this other line and at the same time, there's uh, there's still a mixing in here where the promise that had gone out to, to Adam and Eve likely is being passed down through the ages. 
Yeah, yeah the, the promise uh, and the the knowledge of God, the, the intimate knowledge of God that Adam and Eve had in the garden is being passed down. Uh, he says this in the uh, third page of the chapter there, that first paragraph, page 30. Yeah, there, there's, there is a, a passing down of a, of a religion, a consecration to God, and likely even the, the, the ideas and concepts of uh, bringing uh, the sacrifices to God. Um, you know, this was done in the time of Cain and Abel, um, and it's not a stretch to think that the uh, practice of bringing an offering uh, of sacrifice to God and even prayers uh, was discontinued. Uh, we even see that carried out in uh, Noah the moment he gets off of the ark. So these, this, this, uh, there's a knowledge of God and the promise that's being put forward. Is that promise special revelation? Uh, Bobbing seems to communicate that there's something of a, a distinction, but a very close connection. Uh, he says a, a constant uh, interrelation. So there is this constant blending of general and special revelation. As Bobbing says, they don't stand in isolation alongside of each other, but in continual interrelationship. You have the benefits of culture, the things that came, for instance, from the line of Cain. The line of Seth ends up with that. And then even after the flood, you see yet another division. This is sort of, you know, treated in the same categories that Augustine uses, the city of God, the city of man, which he traces back to these early chapters of Genesis. There's the city of God, the people of God, progressing uh, towards the kingdom of God. And then there's the city of man, the, the all the forces and powers against the things of God. And you see this from the very beginning of human history. And, and as a fast note, like as uh, the city of, of God is progressing and advancing in the sense of in the purposes of salvation, you have on the other end, the spirit, uh, the, the city of man as degressing. Uh, they're getting further and farther away from their knowledge of God and the worship of him. You see that very early on from Genesis 4, where Lamech knows uh, of the story of Cain and God's promise to Cain that he would not put him to death. But would uh, anyone that spilled his blood, he would be avenged sevenfold. Lamech boasts and saying, well, I'll strike a man and kill him. And if uh, a man, you know, uh, I will pay him back 77 fold because he hit me. Yeah. Uh, you have a degress um, in the city of man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, this whole city of God, city of man thing. Somebody should write a song about that. You know what? Yeah, that, that sounds like it would be really good on the Christian pop punk market. Yeah, maybe we could use it as, like, say, the theme music for our show. We should uh, look into some uh, songs about that. If you know, you know anyone who has done such a song, email us at away. Oh, uh, maybe Martin Luther. <laughs> but what sets the city of God apart? There is that line of sacrifice. There is that sense of dependency upon God and of gratitude to him, as Bob Inks calls it. You see already this sense of guilt, grace, gratitude, the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism, the backbone of Reformed theology, where we have our guilt, our sin, and then God's grace already present, even in Genesis 3, after the fall, and then their obedience, their sacrifice, coming in gratitude, coming in thankfulness for what God has done for them. This wasn't just some new thing introduced in the New Covenant or the New Testament. This has always been the way it has worked for God and his people and their relationship between the gospel and the law. And yet with that, these earliest families uh, before Israel, before Abraham even, would we have considered them people of God in a way? 
you know, the, the smallest form of, of the church, the earliest form of the church in all of scripture was the family with the father of priest. And I think we, we see that in the case of the line of Seth uh, and, and onwards, um, the Noah and into the uh, patriarchs. But the Canaanites, Bobby makes an interesting point right at the very end of page 30 and saying that, uh, you know, the Canaanites never actually reached the point of idolatry and uh, the service of graven images. You know, there's there's no mention of those things at this point in scripture until sometime after the flood. Could we consider them in a maybe a way uh, apostates? Well, and we see, too, what brings God's judgment, what brings the flood. It's the intermarriage. It's the line of Seth being married within the line of Cain. Mm-hmm. It's apostate marriage. You know, we have the earliest example in the Bible of missionary dating not working. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> right? Be that a lesson to all of us. So then we have the flood. We have this judgment because of this great sin on the earth. God destroys all but the eight persons he brings through the flood. He brings through the waters of death, the waters of judgment. And then there's sort of a a reset, a restart of the earth again, in a way. Yeah, uh, recreation. With the coming of the flood, though, that isn't just an announcement. uh, That that isn't just God executing a judgment or curse. You know, he he goes and spares Noah's family. Uh, he, He provides himself a remnant among them all. And in this way, God's also bringing a blessing. Well, also, too, often forgotten, often lost in these discussions of Noah, when you look at First and Second Peter, which Bob Inc. does on page 32 there, Noah proclaimed the gospel to these people as he, the ark was being prepared. He was a preacher of righteousness. He told them to repent. They were warned. They had that opportunity, and yet none of them did. Mm-hmm. Right. Get a clash of uh, of cultures here, a clash of kingdoms. You know, this is the struggle against uh, of of the the promise of the seed and the line of the seed against ultimately the the line of the serpent. I want to take a fast pause here and throw us back to something at the uh, the end of page twenty nine, the beginning of the chapter, where uh, Bobink uses a a phrase with the development of the world uh, since the fall. We'd mentioned that there is a constant uh, curse and blessing that uh, uh, that is out here in the history of scripture and the history of, of redemption. God is continually manifesting his wrath and yet by reason of his own good pleasure is always again revealing his grace also. Mm-hmm. He, he cites uh, Psalm 90 verses 7 and 14 here. We are consumed by his anger and yet in the morning we are satisfied by his mercy. Even the judgment from uh, being removed from the garden, uh, even in the fall, there's this display of, yes, the judgment, you know, that you shall surely die uh, would have to be fulfilled in the physical sense, the struggles with uh, toiling in having the earth yield up its uh, fruits, the pain in childbirth. But at the same time, there's blessing through the promise of the seed. And Bob Inc. says that everything has to work together with curse and blessing at once because both point to the cross. Both curse and blessing point to the cross, which at one and the same time is the highest judgment and the richest grace. And that is why the cross is the midpoint of history and the reconciliation of all antitheses. That word, uh, Andrew, antitheses, I just I find that real, I guess, fascinating for the time of Bob Inc. Uh, writing this at the very beginning of the uh, first, first decade of the 20th century. Probably the first thing that comes to mind when most people 
think of antithesis, they're thinking, for instance, of the philosophy of Hegel, where all of history is progressing towards this ultimate goal through the synthesis of the thesis and the antithesis. So you have opposite poles coming together, creating new things that are then reconciled to the new opposite pole coming together. It's this idea of progress through history, of history moving towards something. And, and that's uh, that idea uh, in a notion this is where it's called idealism. It's an interesting thing, though. In the philosophy of Revelation, uh, Bob Inc.'s Stone Lectures at Princeton, given in 1908, Bob scholar uh, Gary Sutanto, uh, amongst others, I, I believe uh, Daniel uh, Ragusa, uh, has also brought this up at one point. The interesting thing with uh, Hegelianism and much of what our, our, our present day worldly secular cultural philosophy is built on is this idea of a, the, the spirit of the age and that history must progress like you were just talking about. And so history is viewed in a terms of succession of events. One part of history has to be replaced or, or progressed by the next part. And so you have a, a sequence of things happening and developing the story of humanity. But the problem with that is you end up with a tendency to then uh, look at history in terms of a single strand uh, of one story from maybe one people group, one story from a particular culture or a, a specific philosophy. Maybe like a particular problem that permeates all of history. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, this is where you get some of the ideas of like, you know, history uh, belongs to the victors or even presently, you know, majority people groups, majority institutions are the ones that are predominant and the minority groups are not given equal standing of uh, their representation in history. It's a Marxist presentation. The poor class is uh, never as represented as the rich and powerful, for example. And so then there's this perceived need to upend history, to upend society, to correct this perceived injustice. You know, you have the oppressed and the oppressor needing to be synthesized, needing to be harmonized. And then once that hurdle was overcome onto the next thing, and then all of history looking backward is is redefined, it's revised through this lens of this oppressor and oppressed dialectic. I mean, that, that's a great way to put it. It's, it's like, you know, what, what is the implication for that then? I mean, our, our worldly conception of history then is, is incredibly like just subjective. Uh, I mean, history can be rewritten. History doesn't matter. Uh, and this, if history doesn't matter, then, I mean, what is the point of the narrative of mankind? What is the point of existence? I mean, does history contain facts? Does it contain events or is it just, you know, is it entirely left to the interpretation? Is it all in the eye of the winner or the loser? And in that same way, I mean, what does that mean for you? Uh, one of Hegel's struggles was, you know, he's trying to find the answer to who am I? He's trying to answer the, the question of, uh, you know, who, who am I as a uh, individual uh, in this world around me? How do I make sense of it? So you end up with a, an existential problem that uh, then even leads to Nietzsche in a very uh, you know, negative and pessimistic manner. In other ways, it, it also leads up not, not just to the individual, uh, nothing matters in life. It could also lead to entire people groups rising up and saying that, you know, they're more worthwhile than others. Uh, you know, their narrative is the most important. And you end up with something like uh, Nazi Germany. Or even in another vein of it, you see the communist rebellions of the 20th century, which, you know, between them all left over 100 million people dead. 
because of these revolutions where the oppressed group rose up to overpower the oppressor group, but then just replaced it with a new oppression. When it comes down to it, uh, the common strand of these oppressions is they are, they're all things that are a part of this world. Uh, whether it's money or uh, sexuality, power, power, yeah, race, no matter what it is, they're all parts of this world. So now, in bringing it back to Bovink, then, Bovink actually addresses this in the philosophy of Revelation. I believe it's in the fifth lecture. In looking at, as we've been saying, general revelation and special revelation, all of history as tying together from the word God created by his word with a purpose. And in this purpose, in this creation, he's going to bring about the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ, and make his glory known to all extents of the earth. God will be praised and God will be glorified uh, amongst his creation, even when we deny it in sin and suppress it. And he's going to even save some in that strand. Now, Bovink's solution to, uh, to say, Hegel's dilemma, this idea of a succession of events, is saying... Look, it's not about a succession of events. Yeah, you're going to get people misrepresented or underrepresented or whatever uh, in this way. History is a side-by-side thing. There's many different stories, many different, uh, a diversity of peoples and cultures in this one creation. How are they all unified, though? By God, by general revelation, actually. He uses general revelation and the purpose in special revelation to tie us all together. And so, in Hegel's view, the high point of history is something still future, something we are still striving for to perhaps someday attain. But in Bovink's view, the high point of history has already happened. It has already come. It was Christ. All of history before pointing to Christ, all of history after pointing back to Christ. Exactly. We're not looking for some higher synthesis in this world, in this age. We already have that. We already have Christ reconciling us to God. And that's the whole thing that we end up seeing here then. I mean, he's using, like, yes, uh, some modernist idealist philosophies. He, uh, Bobbing constantly is appealing to Kant and uh, Hegel and Schopenhauer, among others. But he does so from the framework and the starting place of Scripture and mm-hmm. theology, philosophies in service to the rest of us. From a position of belief. Yeah, it, it makes all the difference. Yeah. So we're going to pause there for now in the middle of the chapter. We'll come back next week and we'll pick up and we'll finish chapter four going through the value of general revelation. But we hope you've enjoyed what we've done here so far. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, you can send us an email, contact us on social media. And also, don't forget to check out our new website, bovcast.com. Detailed show notes, bonus features like Bov News, where if there's anything Bov Inc. related coming out, we might just post about it, offer our two cents. You know, the kind of things you can do when you have a website. It's amazing technology. You can also find media for Bov Inc. related things like wallpapers and stuff. Not on our website, but probably somewhere on the internet. Google Image Search or Bing. Oh, yeah, Bing. We all use Bing. What's Google? I use Bing. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just tie everything back to Ask Jeeves. Ah, Jeeves. Ah, Jeeves. All you did was love us and we betrayed you. We should really bring him back. Bobbing on Jeeves. I don't think he's gone. I think he's still a thing. They retold him for something, I think. Oh, that's a shame. 
May the totes be with you. You mean may the zines be with you? Tote zines. Tote zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.